Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Daniel Ramey, a man who will need no introduction for our regular listeners. Uh, But for those of you who might be new to the podcast this week, Daniel is a senior research associate here at RFF. His research is primarily focused on the shale revolution in the United States, but he brings a wealth of experience in topics related to climate impacts, global energy outlooks, and a number of other important energy and climate-related topics. He's also the other regular host of Resources Radio, so his is a voice that will sound familiar to you. I'm very glad he could join us on the podcast today to talk about fracking, and in particular to talk about how the presidential candidates in this election cycle are talking about fracking. Stay with us. Daniel, thank you for coming back as a guest on Resources Radio, where you are a familiar voice, but it's always nice to have you on the proverbial other side of the microphone. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Listeners would have been thinking maybe they've gotten a break from me, but no, I'm back. (laughs) No, never. (laughs) That's right. Um, Daniel, we are here today to talk about fracking, which is an issue I know is near and dear to your heart. Um, But this time, I just want to remind our listeners that we're talking about fracking in the context of our mini podcast series related to RFF's candidate tracker. And again, our, our the candidate tracker is available on our website at www.rff.org backslash candidate tracker. And I will note that this is the second podcast in this mini series, and the first aired on October 15th. So feel free to check that one out as well. Um, but it is a pleasure to have you back for this second episode of the series. And again, to focus on fracking. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll try to keep up the high standard that Joe Aldi set uh, in the first episode, which which I really enjoyed. Sounds great. All right, let's talk fracking. Um, a number of the candidates have stated positions related to fracking. But before we really talk about those specifics of what the candidates are saying, I, I do want to ask you some more basic questions about shale gas development writ large. Uh, so first, an age-old question, but I think an important reminder. Um, what are the candidates talking about when they use the term fracking? That is an excellent question, and and I do not know the answer. Um, <laughs> so, so I've done a lot of work on fracking and oil and gas development more broadly. People use all sorts of terms when it comes to kind of modern oil and gas development. In the United States, the large majority of new oil and gas development that's taking place involves hydraulic fracturing or fracking. So there's a technical definition for what hydraulic fracturing is, and that is it's the injection of large volumes of water, typically mixed with sand and uh, a small percentage of chemicals deep underground into uh, a, a rock formation Uh, that is either made up of shale or some other tight or impermeable rock formation. So the the hydraulic fracturing fluid goes deep down underground, it creates fractures in the rock, and those fractures allow natural gas and or oil to flow into the well and then up to the surface. So that's kind of the technical definition of fracking. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really only one uh, of many steps that takes place uh, for companies to produce oil and natural gas uh, using today's modern technology in the United States. 
And when candidates use the term fracking, sometimes they appear to be referring to the specific thing that I just described. And then at other times, they appear to be talking about the entire oil and gas industry, right. uh, sort of writ large, or the entire right. upstream oil and gas industry. And so, so we often have to ask that question uh, of, you know, what do they mean when they say fracking? And, and the answer, I think, changes depending on the context. Um, and the the regulatory response that you might take also matters uh, when we're thinking about this terminology. So um, so policymakers could very well limit fracking or oil and gas development more broadly by regulating things that are not fracking. So for example, um, a, um, a policymaker might choose to have really, really strict um, regulations on methane emissions from oil and gas wells. Um, I'm not talking about the the rules that the Obama administration have had previously, but maybe like much more strict, much more stringent standards. And so if you had really stringent standards on methane emissions or let's say water use or water management uh, associated with hydraulic fracturing, that might have the effect of limiting fracking without actually regulating it directly itself. Um, and that's largely because the federal government essentially has very little authority to um, to actually regulate fracking. And I, I know we'll talk some more about that um, in the next few minutes. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect lead into another, I think, very important baseline question. Uh, as these presidential candidates, these federal presidential candidates talk about regulating fracking in its many definitions. Um, I would love to talk more about what levels of government regulate fracking in what ways, or in other words, what does it mean for a presidential candidate to be talking about federal authority in this area? Is that meaningful? Is that, do they have jurisdiction? What does that look like? Yeah, so when we're talking about the specific activity of hydraulic fracturing, the federal government has very little, uh, maybe no authority to, to really limit or, or or ban that activity under current law. So the 2005 Energy Policy Act uh, exempted hydraulic fracturing from regulations under the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, there has been a lot of discussion of that provision of the 2005 Energy Policy Act. Uh, it's quite controversial. Um, my view is that that exemption that was put into law in 2005 didn't have a big effect at the time uh, because the federal government wasn't regulating fracking before 2005 and it still wasn't regulating fracking after 2005. But what that provision in the Safe Drinking Water Act does now is it really uh, ties the hands of the federal government in a pretty meaningful way such that they don't have regulatory tools through the EPA to, uh, to permit uh, or restrict fracking that's taking place uh, in different states around the country. And so, uh, you know, the existing regulatory framework is that state governments are really the ones who have most authority when it comes to oil and gas development, including fracking and other activities associated with oil and gas production. Um, state governments really take the lead. There are some states where localities like cities or counties also have some authority, um, but for the most part, it really the states are in the driver's seat, uh, unless we're talking about federal lands or federal waters. Okay, so if I can summarize those, the answers to those two baseline questions, <laughs> we find ourselves in a position where presidential candidates are talking about regulating a process that they haven't necessarily fully defined in the context of campaigning, at least. And also, they're talking about it in a way that potentially implies that they have more authority than they 
necessarily do, at least given current statutes. Um, maybe that's a maybe that's a bit of a, a harsh characterization, but it does seem like we're in a situation where um, it would be important to parse out what some of those authorities are. And we can talk about that a little bit further in terms of what these presidential candidates could could actualize as they talk about their proposals. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so let's move into that, how they're talking about fracking. First, what what broad themes emerge to you? Are there any are there any surprises? Are there any outliers among the presidential candidates related to the way they think and talk about fracking? Yeah, so there are several different positions. There's, def- there's a spectrum of pres- positions, I would say. Um, on one side of the spectrum, we have uh, the president, President Trump, uh, who's very pro-fracking, very pro-oil and gas, very pro-coal as well. Um, you know, the, the president gave a speech in Pittsburgh a couple weeks ago at a, at a conference, uh, a natural gas industry conference, where, you know, he really touted the industry. He talked about the economic benefits associated with uh, shale development. He talked about some of the environmental benefits of shale gas development. I think some of those some of those claims were were perhaps a bit exaggerated. Um, uh, the president, you know, sometimes claims credit for the growth in oil and gas production that's happened in the U.S. and um, you know, the, there are lots of factors behind the growth of oil and gas production in the U.S. The president is, is certainly not at the top of that list uh, when we think about reasons why there has been growth in, in oil and gas production in the U.S. But nonetheless, you know, the president is very supportive of the industry. He's taken a variety of actions to, you know, reduce or weaken or roll back entirely uh, regulations that the previous administration had tried to implement dealing with things like methane emissions, for example, uh, or regulation on federal lands of oil and gas development. So that's probably one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum is, um, you know, several Democratic uh, candidates for the for the nomination, such as uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Sem- uh, Senator Kamala Harris. They have all, uh, you know, used the word ban uh, when it comes to their, their positions on fracking. And I think that those candidates understand that a fracking ban would require legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not say it every time that they're giving an answer in a debate. You know, they have limited uh, time. They want to make an impact uh, on their uh, potential voter pool. So they're not going to get into the details of the, the legal uh, niceties or ramifications. But but they've clearly articulated the idea that they want to ban fracking on uh public lands, as well as private lands uh, across the United States. So those are probably the two poles. And then there are uh, some candidates who are in the middle, um, who clearly support additional regulations on fracking and oil and gas development, uh, as well as restrictions on new oil and gas development on public lands, uh, but are not all the way in favor of a full fracking ban. So the candidates that kind of occupy that position would be Vice President Biden, uh, Senator Klobuchar, uh, Mayor Pete uh, from Indiana. And, you know, the the terminology that these candidates use are, are all different, but those are kind of the the broad strokes of the positions that they've taken out. And I guess, you know, none of these positions strike me as all that surprising. Um, in the Democratic Party, you know, there's a pretty strong appetite for action on climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the fracking 
has a complex relationship with climate change. You know, we, we talked about that on a previous podcast episode. You know, there's some positives associated with increased natural gas production, but there are also a variety of negatives associated with both natural gas and oil production. And so, but, but I think fracking has been a sort of useful um, uh, catch-all, or it's a term that, um, that, that presidential candidates can use as a signal to their constituents that they are serious about environmental issues and mm-hmm. serious about climate change. You know, fracking, for better or worse, it's not a very appetizing sounding word. Uh, it sort of has a negative connotation. It sounds like a, a four letter word that we can all think of. Mm-hmm. And so when you say you, you know, you oppose fracking or you want to ban fracking, whether or not, um, you know, voters understand all the details of, of your position. I think they sort of hear, you know, oh, this person is serious about climate and they're serious about the environment. And I think that's one of the sort of big signaling devices that uh, the candidates are using, at least in the Democratic Party. Yeah. I, I Just a quick follow-up question on that. I, how much of that, that signaling, if, if, again, I think you make a good point that it's, it's sort of a proxy for general concern for a number of environment, energy, climate-related issues. But if I can ask you to sort of parse out, how much do you think a ban on fracking is in fact a nod towards dealing with climate change versus other environmental issues that, you know, quite frankly, I think have have been more on the minds of people who actually are in close proximity to fracking, related to water quality and air quality and health impacts and a number of other sort of environmental challenges. So do you have any thoughts on... Um, what the balance is between the various signals that are being sent by a potential fracking ban? Yeah, that's a great question. And the sort of public concerns over fracking, I think, have evolved a little bit over time. Um, in the early days of uh, shale development, particularly in Pennsylvania, um, and when the film Gasland came out in, I want to say, 2011, uh, you know, the bulk of the concern was really about water quality and how, uh, you know, all this new development was going to affect water quality around the country. Um, there are impacts of oil and gas development on water quality, or at least potential impacts um, that, that we've seen, but they haven't been, um, you know, maybe at the scale that some people were concerned about early on. Uh, and so as time has gone by, you know, I think public concern around fracking, particularly among anti-fracking advocates, of which, you know, there's a pretty healthy, healthy constituency out there, um, you know, they have really turn to focus more on uh, climate change risks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of methane emissions from natural gas and oil systems, which is a really important topic. Um, and, and so so when the candidates talk about banning fracking, I think they're nodding to both the local concerns that people have about water potential water contamination, as well as potential health risks from living close to oil and gas operations. But they're also nodding to you know, climate concerns and the idea that to to achieve the kind of ambitious climate targets that many of the candidates have laid out, such as, you know, reaching net zero emissions by 2045 or 2050, you know, that almost certainly means a substantial reduction in consumption and hence production of oil and natural gas. And so I, I think they're they're kind of um, kind of nodding at both both sides of that equation. Right. And that really does point to the fact that, you know, when candidates by the climate logic, at least, when candidates are talking about banning fracking, they might actually really mean banning shale gas development, not the actual process of of fracking and, and any concerns around water quality that might come with that. So perhaps there's sort of a, a revealed reality of what candidates are talking about as well when they talk about bans. Um, 
Yeah. And I would just add to that, yeah. like a, a lot of times when people talk about fracking, there, there's an a, there's an association between fracking and natural gas or shale mm-hmm. gas. But when we think about fracking these days, it's really more of an oil story yeah, than a natural a gas story. And it, yeah. it really has been for a little while. So if you look at the just the number of drilling rigs that are out there in the United States these days, most of them are focused on oil and most of them are using hydraulic fracturing to get at that oil. Um, so when we talk about a fracking bin, we're really talking about both natural gas and oil. Yeah, yeah, big big chunks of the economy potentially in play here. So, um, so a little bit more on bans, and I wanna harken back to our earlier conversation about jurisdictional authority as well. Uh, let's say, a candidate like Senator Sanders or Senator Warren did in fact come into office and they decided to, he or she decided to implement a fracking ban. Uh, How would such a thing come to pass? You mentioned that new legislation would be needed at the federal level if this were to be actualized on any broad, broad scale. So yeah, how would, how would such a thing happen in your, in your educated opinion? And then also can you speculate a little bit about what the implications of that might be? Sure. So if if it if if a president were able to pass a fracking ban through Congress, I think that would be a really monumental hurdle um just you know given the structure of of our uh, of our legislature, particularly the Senate, um you know, it is fairly hard to imagine that actually happening yeah. in, in the world that we live in today. Who knows, though? You know, politics can change quickly. Uh, and so so they would definitely need legislation to actually do this. And um, if a fracking ban were to be passed, then uh, the timing of that ban becomes really important. So if fracking were banned or, you know, new oil and gas development were banned uh, tomorrow, uh, that would have an extremely disruptive effect on a variety of you know different parts of the economy. Um, the 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 more likely scenario that I could imagine would be you know if this thing were actually to happen, which is as we've stipulated pretty unlikely in the first place. But but if it were to happen, I, I would imagine that it would have to be phased in over some period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know maybe five years or something like that. Um, you know the the effects of of an actual or a de facto fracking ban in the United States um, would mean, you know, higher oil prices uh, here in the United States and globally. Uh, recent estimates from Lutz Killian uh, and some other scholars have sort of estimated that the the U.S. shale boom has reduced global oil prices by about 10% over the last five years or so. Mm-hmm. So you could expect at least a 10% bump. I would expect probably a little bit more, at least in the short term. Um, natural gas prices would increase uh substantially more. Um, the, uh, you know, researchers Ryan Kellogg and Catherine Hausman have estimated that the shale boom has reduced natural gas prices by more than 60% in the United States. Uh, and so this is largely because oil is traded globally, whereas natural gas is mostly traded within the United States. So the the effects in the United States uh, would be sort of more direct and, and more immediate. Um, so you could could expect a, a natural gas price spike of you know sixty percent 
I would think probably even more than that at this point, mm. um, given the fact that natural gas prices have been consistently under three dollars uh, for the last you know several years. Uh, I think we'd be a, we'd see a big uh, spike in gas prices uh, in the short term. Again, depending on the timing over which the the ban was implemented, over the short term we'd we'd almost definitely see a resurgence in coal fired uh, electricity generation. Um, that is, if there were no other policies addressing coal. One of the things that's complicated here is that if a president were able to get a fracking ban through Congress, they almost certainly would also be able to get some other stuff through Congress uh, dealing <laughs> with climate change. Other climate legislation change. in particular, sure. Yeah. yeah, which would probably limit the ability of coal to make a comeback. But if we're talking about a sort of standalone fracking ban, then one would expect coal to, to, to benefit substantially uh, from that. And then just sort of a couple more I impacts. You know, over the sort of medium term, five to, to 10 to 20 years, I think we would expect nuclear and renewables to benefit substantially. Uh, we would see more uh, investments in energy efficiency, uh, not least because energy prices would go way up. And so people would have much stronger incentive to, to invest in efficiency. Um, you know, in terms of local impacts, the places where uh, this oil and gas boom is, has been happening West Texas, parts of North Dakota, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, et cetera, you would see uh, really dramatic uh, negative economic effects, mm -hmm. uh, particularly for rural regions where uh, the boom has really sort of reshaped the economy uh, of some of these places. And, um, and, and I think they would be there would need to be really serious attention paid to how to um, sort of support those communities and support the workers who would be displaced by any type of fracking ban. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thought is, you know, if a fracking ban were to be implemented quickly in a way that was super disruptive, it's, you know, I could imagine the political ramifications of that being, you know, potentially pretty, pretty extreme. You know, a place like North Dakota that relies on oil and gas production for, you know, roughly half of its government revenue. Um, Oklahoma, Texas, Wyoming, where, you know, oil and gas, it's a huge part of the economy. Um, I can imagine really vigorous political opposition. Um, and, and I would actually sort of worry about uh, the stability of some of those regions. Um, if you were to do a fracking ban that was like really kind of ham-fisted um, and, uh, and took place over a really short period of time, I can right. imagine lots of social uh, sort of disruption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think that this question of how workers will transition out of industries that are in fact being driven to change by policy decisions is at the heart of so much of the debate around climate policy and the Green New Deal. And I'm sure policymakers are considering that as they as they think about these policies. But I think it's also good to to challenge candidates to make sure they have a plan for any consequences of a potential policy choice they make. So. So. In your view, how much do the candidates' positions reflect the views of their prospective constituents on this topic? Uh, in other words, do they sort of take a populist view around fracking, shale gas development, shale oil development? Or do the stances that candidates are taking represent more more niche constituencies, more, uh, more of the outliers on the political spectrum than the middle? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I haven't looked at a lot of public opinion data recently on on fracking but um you know it is certainly the case that it, for a lot of political issues you know it's the vocal minority that really drives um 
uh, drives policymakers to to signal on issues like fracking or you know other controversial topics, potentially heated topics. And so I think that certainly on the left, there's a very vocal constituency that is that is very anti-fracking, uh, where you know that is you know one of the one of the very top issues for them. And you know if you go to um, if you think back to the 2016 uh, presidential cycle at the Democratic uh, convention, there were a variety of uh, delegates on the floor who were sort of chanting, you know, ban fracking now um, as a way to sort of get their message across to um, to Secretary Clinton, who was the nominee and, and who did not favor a ban on fracking at the time. Um, and so, so I think on the left, there's definitely... Um, you know, some motivation to reach out to those very, that very vocal group uh, that is very anti-fracking. On the, uh, on the more conservative side of the spectrum, I think there's a similar dynamic going on where, you know, fracking is not the number one priority for, for most uh, Republican primary voters or, or voters who might be predisposed to support President Trump. Um, but it, but it can, again, play a signaling role uh, and be one of those issues that is you know quite important to a relatively small portion of the electorate uh, and then you know the policymaker can also um, signal to that broader base that you know they are in favor of oil and gas playing a big role in the economy going forward by just saying you know I love fracking and we want to promote fracking and mm-hmm. uh, you know some kind of simple phrases like that so so I think they're mostly speaking to the niche constituencies but I think there's also some bleed over into the broader the broader electorate that just kind of gets these signals along the mm-hmm. way mhm sure well, I do want to circle back to President Trump and his support for oil and gas development as as well as coal production, as you've mentioned. And maybe I'll just close the sort of substantive portion of this by asking if President Trump or potentially other Republican nominees who might also be uh, might lean towards either at least support and potentially expansion of oil and gas production. Um, if that's the trajectory that we're on. Then tell me more about what shale gas and shale oil development in the U.S. might look like in a world where there's federal support for that activity. I think it looks pretty similar to what it's looked like over the last five years. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I, I've done talks and people will ask questions about, you know, the role that the Trump administration's um, regulatory rollbacks might have on the industry. And I think they might have some effect around the margin. Mm-hmm. Um but when we're talking about um, onshore U.S. oil and gas development, which is primarily what we're talking about when we're talking about fracking, um, there, there's really not that much more the federal government needs to do uh, to encourage oil and gas operators to um, to get out there and invest. Um, the technologies have improved so much over the last 15 years and particularly over the last you know five or six years that companies are now able to you know profitably drill wells um, uh, for for prices that they you know would not have been able to just a few years earlier and so the technological development in the industry has really been pretty astounding mm-hmm. uh, and it's really what has driven the growth in production in the US it hasn't been sort of a, a set of regulatory changes or a set of attitudes uh, from the public it's it's really the technology that's driving the way and as long as oil and gas prices remain at relatively stable levels i mean they're pretty low today right natural gas prices are extremely low oil prices are quite low as well 
um, despite the fact that there are a variety of kind of geopolitical risks that are out there in the world. Uh, and yet oil production continues to grow in the United States. We're continuing to produce more than 12 million barrels of oil per day, which is more than the U.S. has ever produced. Um, the U.S. is becoming a, a net exporter of crude oil and petroleum products uh, combined, not of crude oil. Uh, we still import uh, quite a bit more crude oil than we export, but when you combine crude and, and refined products like gasoline and diesel, those lines are really starting to converge and we're starting to become a net exporter. And so I think you know if you were to see a loosening of regulations or opening more federal land, more federal waters to oil and gas development, it might have some, you know, some positive effect for production over the medium to long term. But I think really what's driving this train is technology. Mm -hmm. um, and the main thing that could slow it down are the types of bans that we've been talking about, or potentially other climate policies that don't focus on the the supply side, but instead mm -hmm. focus on the demand side, mm -hmm. reducing demand for uh, for fossil fuels um, across the economy in a way that would end up redounding and, and negatively affecting the producers of oil, right. natural gas, and coal. Well, thanks, Daniel. That's a really helpful overview of some potential futures that we as an economy might experience, depending on how candidates uh, move forward in this election cycle. And then, of course, as you wisely pointed out, what policies they could actually get passed once in office. Um, but this has been a really helpful overview, a good uh, re-grounding in this topic, and then a good reflection on how it fits into the current political dialogue as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, I did want to close with top of the stack because we always close with top of the stack. What and would we be without it? Exactly. Um, so I would invite you, certainly, if you have something on the top of your stack that you would like to mention to our listeners, uh, please feel free to do so. I also do have something at the top of mine, which I'm also happy to share, but I'll yeah. turn the floor over to you if you have anything you'd like to mention. Sure. So I'll just mention two quick things. Um, one of them is a, is a podcast. So as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, you can go check it out. <laughs> it's um, it's an episode of the Ezra Klein podcast, and mm -hmm. I don't normally listen to it, but uh, there were a variety of recommendations from people I respect pointing out this really cool interview that Ezra Klein did with Dr. Kate Marvel, mm -hmm. uh, who mm -hmm. is a climate scientist and a really great uh, sort of science communicator and climate communicator. Um, and it's just a really, it's kind of like a masterclass on how to be a really good climate communicator, mm -hmm. I think. Awesome. Um, so I would definitely recommend people check that out. And then the other thing along similar lines on climate change is um is a paper that I that I just downloaded and it's on my metaphorical stack because it's on my <laughs> desktop on my computer um, but it's it's a new article in Nature Climate Change um, called Acknowledging Uncertainty Impacts Public Acceptance of Climate Scientists Predictions uh, and it's a paper by Lauren C. Howe and several other co-authors, including Robert Sokolow. And it's a paper about how, when climate scientists talk about climate change, how much do they include the uncertainties that are kind of embedded in a lot of the modeling, modeling exercises and the uncertainties that exist in like the, the physical Earth system that we still haven't totally figured out, uh, and about how including those uh, uncertainties when discussing climate change affects sort of the public perception or the credibility uh, of those communicators. So so I actually haven't read that yet, uh, but it, it sounds fascinating. So I'm looking forward to checking it out. That sounds great. Thanks for those recommendations. Uh, and I just wanted to put in a plug as well. Um, this is, in fact, literally on the top of my stack because somehow I managed to print it out on 
overly sized legal paper. So it's <laughs> sitting here very prominently. Um, but I wanted to recommend to our listeners one of your recent blogs. Um, I hope I get the title right, but I believe it's called Getting Real on the Economic and Environmental Impacts of the Shale Gas Revolution in the United States. Something like that. Yeah, I probably said shale revolution because I I don't put the word gas after shale so much these days. And somehow also in my giant printout, the full title did not show up. So my apologies, but thanks for clarifying that. And I did did really enjoy your reflections on some of the administration's um, recent reporting on the impacts of the shale revolution in this country. And I think you have some good insights about what parts of that we might want to... uh, listen to and what parts we might want to challenge and so yes i would certainly recommend that to the listeners as well thanks christian you're gonna be super sick of me by the end of this (laughs) no such thing um also something that we were talking about just as we were beginning this podcast that is wholly unrelated to shale but is nonetheless a recommendation that's on my mind is the movie yesterday daniel you know you and i have a a long history of talking about music as well as talking about energy and climate change and um yeah given recent references to the beatles music um i thought of the movie yesterday as a wonderful encapsulation of what makes the beatles and their music so special and a great soundtrack for life so i would encourage anyone who hasn't seen it to go check it out mostly just to steep yourself in the wonderful beatles sounds for an hour and a half and maybe shed a few tears along the way Great. Well, Daniel, thank you again. It's always nice to have you as both a host and a guest. And I'm sure I will talk to you again very soon. Thanks, Kristen. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.